the end of the world as we know it. Hollywood, at least, is full of ideas about how that's going to happen. Maybe you recognise some of the movies in that clip. Hollywood's not the only ones interested in it. Scientists are too. Uh, They reckon the universe started with the Big Bang. Well, the Big Freeze, the Big Rip, the Big Bounce and the Big Crunch are all different ideas about how the universe is actually going to end. By that time, however, life here on Earth will probably be long gone. Global warming, mutation of a super virus, expansion of the sun to giant phase, uh, meteor shower shift in the world's magnetic poles, an ice age triggered by volcanic eruptions. The possibilities are almost endless of what scientists call extinction-level events. There's actually a lot of people out there giving a lot of thought to how one day the world as we know it is going to end. Now, this morning in Revelation, we've reached a couple of chapters which describe exactly that. It's a section which describes the end of the world, not according to Hollywood, not according to scientists, according to God himself. Chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. This morning's section kicks off with the announcement of the seven last plagues about to fall on earth. Notice how, like last week, this vision is again described as a great and marvellous sign. Again, we're being alerted to the fact that we've reached a critical moment in the context of the book. Notice also it returns us to that usual pattern of counting down seven specific things. We've had the seven letters to the seven churches. We've had the seven seals. We've had the seven trumpets. Now it's seven plagues. Significantly, seven last plagues. Why last? Well, we're told. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. John is being very specific here. We are about to witness God's final judgment being poured out onto his creation. The definitive end of all things is on view here. The present heavens and earth are about to pass away. And therefore, not surprisingly, this this is the last sequence of sevens to appear in the book. No more sevens after this one. What the remaining chapters will do is to spell out the aftermath, the repercussions, the implications of these seven last plagues. And we'll see what they are next week. Back here in chapter 15, before we actually get to the plagues, however, there's a bit more scene setting that has to take place so as to build the anticipation. Verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the, nu- and over the number of his name. Back in chapter 3, when John first saw his very first vision of God seated on the heavenly throne, do you remember that in front of God was an enormous sea of glass? Remember that? It was a picture of complete and utter calm, submission before God. Now, however, the tension is rising in the text because now the sea of glass is mixed with fire. There is an increasingly ominous tone to things. Fire is often associated with judgment and punishment and destruction. And beside this great sea of glass and fire are all the first century Christians who have resisted the persecution of the Roman Empire. They're described there as being victorious over the beast. 
Now, the beast is a symbol for the Roman Empire that popped up back in chapter 13. We'll see it again next week. Here is a vision of those first century Christians who have stood firm and have not worshipped the emperor. They may have been executed in this life, but in this vision, we see them victorious. And we're told at the end of the verse that they held harps given to them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, friends, this whole scene, if you're picturing it in your head, this whole scene, and in particular the mention of the song of Moses, it's taking us back to Exodus, to when the Israelites sang the song of Moses as they stood victorious by the Red Sea, celebrating their escape out of Egypt, a miraculous escape in which God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Remember how God saved them from slavery in Egypt by pouring out his judgment onto Egypt in a whole heap of plagues. And now here in chapter 15 of Revelation, we have the followers of Jesus victoriously singing by a sea. Just, after an, just before another set of plagues are about to fall. The text is building our anticipation. We are about to see something momentous. Because just like the Exodus was the big moment of, God's, of victory for God's people in the Old Testament, here now is the big moment of victory for those who have stood loyal to Jesus. Here now is the big moment of victory for those who have endured the Roman persecution without per, uh, betraying their faith. Here now is their moment of vindication. So there is singing and there is celebration and there is eager anticipation as the seven last plagues are finally poured out. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now, friends, maybe it's helpful at this stage to remind ourselves that we're reading an apocalyptic book, okay? This is a picture book. It's making use of highly symbolic visions. And so as we read of ugly and painful sores here, I think it's reading too much into the text to suggest that at the end of the world, people will actually get ugly and painful sores because of some killer virus or some biological warfare. Down in verse 9, when the sun is given power to scorch people, it's not saying that the end of the world will come because the sun will expand to red giant phase and engulf the world's, the earth's uh, orbit. Revelations, it's not a science book, it's a, it's a picture book. And a picture is being painted here again to remind us of the plagues that fell on Egypt. We've already been reminded of them by the whole Song of Moses thing, but here the plagues themselves, the, the painful sores. We'll read about blood in verses 3 and 4, darkness in, in verse 10, even the mention of frogs in verse 13. They're all echoes of the plagues that fell on Egypt. Again to remind us that we are seeing a picture of God's fury falling on the enemies of his people. Indeed, more than that. We've already had some plagues in Revelation, haven't we, back in chapter 8. We, we read of plagues that destroyed a third of the earth. It symbolised the partial judgement of God that currently falls on earth. These plagues, however, affect all the earth. As now we see the full and final judgement of God raining down. 
Here's the thing about them, though. They're not simply random and arbitrary. They actually fall in a certain pattern. By the way, so did the ones in the Old Testament. But, but the way these plagues fall here in Revelation, uh, some of them have certain things in common with each other and it has the effect of breaking the plagues into three distinct phases and each phase tells us something about the nature of God's wrath. For example, the first three plagues, the sores that we just heard about, and then there's two plagues in which the seas and the rivers turn to blood. All three of these have the, have the emphasis of the appropriateness of God's wrath. I mean, how appropriate is it that, that those with the mark of the beast should now have ugly and painful marks on their body as well? How appropriate that those who shed the blood of others should now have to drink blood themselves? It's all emphasising the fact that when God's anger falls, it's true, it's just, and the punishment will fit the crime. I mean, don't you hate it when you hear on the news when someone has committed a terrible crime and they get off with a pathetically light sentence? That will not happen when God's judgment falls. It will be exactly as verse 5 of chapter 16 says. You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The next two plagues. This is where the sun scorches people and then darkness engulfs people. The emphasis now is on the justified nature of God's wrath because with both these plagues, suddenly you get a refrain in them that hasn't appeared before uh, about how the victims of the plague continue to curse the God of heaven and refuse to repent. It's a picture of stupid and incredibly stubborn rebelliousness and it's making the point that God's wrath is justified. His anger isn't malicious, his anger isn't vindictive or arbitrary, his anger is warranted, it's fitting, it's deserved, it's rightly falling on rebellious, hard-hearted people. Which actually puts us in a bit of a difficult situation because really that's all of us. We're all guilty of failing to give God the credit or the attention or the obedience that, that he really deserves. We're just not as conscious of it as God is because we like to compare ourselves with other people instead of to God's standards. Earlier this year, our family visited Questacon in Canberra. Love Questacon. And while we were there, we watched a show that was called Perception Deception. It was a show all about how our senses can sometimes be tricked into fooling us into thinking things that aren't really quite true. So one of the things they did was they put on a black screen two squares Uh, One was a really bright white square and the other was a really dirty grey one and they asked the question, the obvious question, which one's the white one? You could pick it a mile away. They then replaced the grey square with a much whiter one and suddenly the original one that you thought was white wasn't white at all. It was now the dirty grey one and it looked so grey compared to the new one that you you couldn't believe you ever thought that it was white. That's because our brains were telling us in the comparison before. Now friends, we just don't do that with squares on a screen, we do it with each other. And we can usually find someone who we at least think is worse than ourselves and therefore we conclude, well, I'm not all that bad, I'm pretty white. But if we compare ourselves with what God wants of us, we are a disgusting grey and a day will come when that will be obvious. 
And here in chapter 16, it's building this picture of the appropriateness and the justified nature of God's anger as it is poured out. And then finally in the last two plagues, we get the final wrath of God being shown to be utterly overwhelming. Now these last two plagues are perhaps the hardest ones, the strangest ones. In verse 12, the sixth plague unleashes a terrible demon-inspired confrontation as all the kings of the world take their stand against God at a place called Armageddon. Now Armageddon's a real place. Uh, It's a fortified hill in uh, Palestine. It was the scene of a heap of epic battles in history. And so sometimes it is suggested that what is being predicted, that what is being shown here is a prediction of a future real event, that Jesus is going to return and actually fight a future battle against a future antichrist in the place Armageddon. Now, friends, antichrist isn't even mentioned here. And we've got to keep remembering that this is visions and pictures and symbols. To think that this is actually predicting a future battle, that's like thinking that it's actually predicting ugly and painful sores will appear on everyone in the future and that the entire seas and rivers of the world will really turn into blood. It's picture stuff. And here with Armageddon, the picture it's painting, the lesson it's giving is that when God's wrath falls, resistance is futile. Look at verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It's done. Friends, what we are seeing here is the expectation of a battle that never happens. The lesson is that you can go up against the judgment of God if you want. You can have all the kings of the earth on your side if you want. It'll still be no competition. On the day when the earth as we know it disappears, when God's wrath is poured out in its completeness, there will be no battle. There will simply be a pronouncement. It's done. Wrap it up. And God's wrath will be completed. His appropriate, deserved, overwhelming, unavoidable, invincible, Wrath will fall. And at the risk of stating the obvious, you don't want to be there when it happens. I mean, have you been visualising the plagues on the way through? Ugly and painful sores all over your body. Drinking blood. Being scorched with fire. Plunged into darkness. Gnawing your own tongue in agony utterly and unceremoniously crushed in a one-sided confrontation. We're meant to be seeing that these are unpleasant things. We'll see more of that next week, all the stuff at the end of chapter 16 about Babylon the Great having to drink the cup of God's fury. We'll we'll check out that sort of things next week as, as the effect of these plagues are driven home in the final chapters. But even this morning, already, The text is screaming out to us. Friends, you don't want to be where these plagues are. Which is exactly the warning we're meant to have. Because it's exactly the warning that helps us appreciate what is being revealed to us about Jesus.
for he is the one who enables us to escape all of this. See, come with me back to chapter 15. I'd like us to be reminded of a verse we've already noticed, verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Friends, the most crucial perspective to notice in these whole chapters, the most critical thing to notice in these last seven plagues is that the followers of Jesus are spectators to them, not recipients of them. And that is so important because remember from verse 1, these plagues are all about the completeness of God's wrath. They're about God pouring out his anger, his fury, his displeasure on the world. And the followers of Jesus, they will be spared of that. They will be making music by the sea of glass and fire. Why? Well, because of all the reasons that Revelation has already explained to us over the past few weeks and chapters about how Jesus is the Lion of Judah who has already triumphed over the enemies of God, about how he is the Lion of Judah who has triumphed because he is the Lamb who was slain. He's given his life as a ransom so that we could be purchased back to God. Now, as we thought about last week, the devil, the, that, that slanderer, that accuser, he's got nothing to accuse us of. We've been forgiven. We've been washed clean before God. And all this wonderful stuff that Revelation has already pointed out to us is now soaked into the text by virtue of the fact that the followers of Jesus are the onlookers to the plagues, not the casualties of the plagues. And that would have meant so much to those seven churches to whom Revelation was originally written. First century Christians suffering persecution at the hands of the Roman emperor. First century Christians whose faith seemed to do nothing but get them into trouble. And here is a vision telling them that come time, their staying loyal to Jesus will be worth it. Come time, they will be vindicated, they will be safe. One of the most famous martyrs of the Roman persecution was a chap named Polycarp. Maybe you've heard the name before. Uh, Before John was exiled onto Patmos, where he wrote Revelation, before he was exiled, he appointed Polycarp as the leader of the church at Smyrna, which you might remember is one of the seven churches that Revelation is written to. Polycarp was 86 when the Romans came for him. On the day of his hearing, they threw him from the moving chariot on the way to the court, dislocating his hip. He was dragged before the proconsul, and it was demanded that he acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Respect your old age. You've had a good life. Why end it like this? If you utter just one word against Christ, we'll release you. Polycarp famously replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never let me, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Hear my confession. I am a Christian. I have wild beasts, the proconsul threatened. Call for them, Polycarp replied. I am unalterably resolved not to change. 
If beasts don't scare you, I have fire. Your fire burns for a short time, then flickers out. You are ignorant of the judgment to come, of everlasting fire prepared for the wicked. Polycarp was burnt to death. His corpse was mutilated. But he heeded the lesson of the seven last plagues. Your fire bursts only for a short time, then flickers out. You are ignorant of the judgment to come, of everlasting fire. Friends, we turn to me for a moment to those movie clips we watched earlier. Technology has made it very easy for us to watch so much make-believe and fantasy uh, at the movies nowadays. Blue avatars, um, beautiful vampires, teenage wizards. Don't get me wrong, it can be a lot of fun to go and see them at the movies, but maybe it has the effect of making us think that when we see an end-of-the-world type movie, maybe we're in danger of lumping it all together in that same kind of fantasy category. We get a bit numb by it and we start to think, it's never going to happen. It's silly. It's make-believe to think that this world will ever end. Friends, these are chapters that want us to see that one day it will. And it may not be the way Hollywood depicts it or the way scientists predict it. But take God's word for it. Come time, the seven last plagues, they will be poured out. And God's wrath will be complete. And therefore, can I encourage you again this morning, as Revelation has done continuously, whatever it is taking to stay loyal to Jesus, there will come a day when it will be worth it. You don't want to be where these plagues are. And because of Jesus, we don't have to be. All praise to the Lamb. I'll pray. Father, thank you that your anger is appropriate, deserved, overwhelming and invincible. But thank you also that in Jesus we can take refuge from it. Thank you that because of your son, the lamb who was slain, we have actually been purchased for you. We've been washed clean. We have been forgiven. Father, thank you that at the last day, those who take refuge in your son will not have the plagues fall on them. Father, we are utterly, utterly humbled by that because we know we don't deserve it. But Father, we are also utterly thrilled at your mercy and your compassion. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen.